Okay. Yeah. I see him. All right. Cool. Hi, everybody, and welcome to No Country. My name is J. David Osborne, coming at you not live from Oklahoma with a baby falling asleep on my shoulder. That's Chris Sacknesson. Chris, how are you doing this afternoon? Afternoon, my time. David, I'm well, and my first question to you is, are you crushed with anxiety? Can you not face the day because of depression? I walked onto the campus of the university. I'm teaching one class at this uh, semester. Beautiful, beautiful morning. You know, a lot of you know young bodies that look good. A lot of everyone's got a technological device. Some really cool wheeled contraptions getting people around. You know, people in many parts of the world would go, not a care in the world, but the student union building is absolutely like Christo wrapped with these slogans about psychological problems, about being crushed with anxiety and, you know, weeping with despair. And you look at them and you go, well, <laughs> what's going on? I mean, if you didn't, if you weren't crushed with anxiety, you'd kind of be left out, wouldn't you? And so mm -hmm. this is the sort of message that we're putting out to uh, young people on, a, on beautiful, you know, late summer, early fall days. And it just made me laugh. So I hope you're not crushed with anxiety and weeping and headbanging with despair. If I was crushed with anxiety and weeping and headbanging with despair, I would have to be locked up in a mental institution because once that snowball starts down the hill, who knows where it would go. There you go. There's an acute, uh, there is an acute frustration. I was telling you this over the phone before we started because my kid actually fell asleep before I called you. He had just fallen asleep, and uh, my senile dog took that opportunity to go into our restroom and just begin knocking things over left and right the toilet paper holder big metal clang on the ground uh, his diaper pail went got knocked over i'm not really sure what she was doing but i think dogs are smarter than we give them credit for and i think that was the dog version of playing a prank so um thus i'm holding him the babies are really funny because if they nap at all anybody who's had a kid knows the the you know the, t the intensity, the sheer, a, a movie could not compare to the intensity of trying to get home before your kid falls asleep in the back seat of the car. Because all it takes is those eyes to close for about five minutes, and for some reason, no matter how tired physically they might be, they feel like they've already napped, which very well might be the scenario for this episode. This might be a Gus heavy episode because it's really a coin toss now whether he falls back asleep or not. Anyway, I say all that to say that if I started making anxiety and depression into a part of my personality, I feel like that would be a miserable way to live. Yeah, you know, it makes me, my first thought was I want to put those big banners everywhere. I want to make sure that people see only those banners constantly, you know. And I think that if there was just this relentless exposure, as kind of what, you know, the, the contemporary media is doing this in its own 
way. I think we'll reach a saturation point where people will start laughing idiotically and just go, I don't care, this is nonsense, you know. Uh, I'm much Yeah, you know, they're going to start really getting back to the basics of, you know, where's the best place to get a burrito? Uh, How's my girlfriend (laughs) or boyfriend treating me right now? Uh, You know, why doesn't my mother get off my back? Why don't I have more money? You know, they're going to be thinking about, you know, and maybe occasionally some of the the really beautiful thoughts of, like, for instance, why a dragonfly is the number one predator on planet Earth, the most skillful. We'll start thinking of things, you know. So I think maybe bring on these banners, these stupid, uh, woke slogan, agendaized concerns about, you know, all of the problems these people are having <laughs> because they're basically affluent, overfed, and you know, under-enthused. Uh, it'll change. It'll change. Right, Gus? Yeah, Gus is, uh... Oh, let me check this diaper. Oh, my goodness. I just smelled something. So you're getting this live on the air, folks. I One of the the band names I thought about was Loaded Diaper. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, let's... Uh, well, it looks like this one is not loaded, so that's good. But, um... I had a thought, speaking of random thoughts that you had, if you were shrunk down to the size of an ant while laying in bed, and you walked to the edge of that bed and jumped off, would you die? Well, first still of all, only you... a couple feet. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, it, and you're not an ant, though? You're not an ant. You're a human who's shrunk to the size of Oh, well, of first of all, you'd be really tired. A lot of people wouldn't be able to, to deal with that exertion today. Um <laughs> You know, that would be really... A lot of people would, would simply not uh, have the gumption to jump. There's no way they would do that. You know, that's like, you know, base jumping. No, not even base jumping. They'd be doing that complete freestyle. Now, uh, but yeah, there would be, uh, I think probably about, I don't know, I'd say a 95% death rate out of that. Yeah, what, from starvation? No. Or from, or from, from jumping? Oh, if they, if they did jump. If, like, let's say if they were pushed. But no, they would probably, yeah, no, it wouldn't be good. It wouldn't be good. Well, I had a friend, Jordan Harper, do a little bit of research on this, and apparently you can drop a mouse. They did experiments of dropping a, a mouse from 1,000 feet, and as long as it's a relatively soft landing, the mice tend to survive because as your surface area decreases somehow you actually become a bit more your your, your bone density uh, increases in, in strength from a drop like that by a thousand so we might we might we very well might very well might actually survive that fall but uh, like you said most of them would just find different places on the bed to camp out and kind of wallow in their in their misery and then they'd probably be sat on and crushed and, and die of course, but, um, you know, what, yeah. what you'd have to be really concerned about is people who, you know, are professionally dropping live mice from, you know, yeah. and, and checking <laughs> that out. There, there is that concern. Anyone who's yeah. doing that, you know, uh, in a professional capacity and actually uh, admitting to it, I think those are the people you, you want to uh, see. And I'd like to see how they fare being dropped off from anything. I think that would be quite interesting. Um, yeah. yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. 
Uh, so you mentioned your band name at the top of the show before I get my imaginative challenge. What band name do you have for us today, and what aphorism do you have? For okay, us today? okay. Well, my band name is this is a, this is it. Kind of came to me not in a dream, but in sort of a semi sort of daydream. I kind of just put my head down on the desk for five minutes because I was so frustrated. And the phrase Texarkana Man came to my mind. I love the, the town of Texarkana. I think it's a great, great name. Uh, and Texarkana Man in the same, in the, you know, like in the context of, you know, any kind of archaic human designation. But in this case, this is a, a, a complicated celebrity who is presenting as a real, legitimate, black, blues musician who happens to be 130 years old. That's his, his game. And it's wrapped up in like sideshow midway kind of superstitious packaging. I mean, of course, he's not, is he really 130 years old? I mean, he has some memories that seem to be that. Then there's also these sort of uh, rumors that he's actually very well made up and a very good uh, character actor. And he actually started off as a hedge fund operator in New York and just decided he would have some fun and create a character. But he is Texarkana man, and he is a legitimate outsider uh, musician too. He plays a whole sequence of bottles, and he makes some of his own instruments. And his first album is called Back Fat and a Blind Woman. Two things which in the context of the song are very good to find. Back mm. Fat and a Blind Woman, Texarkana Man an alternative musician or a very interesting hoax for times in which we're desperate for authentic eccentric characters that is the question um so i thought yeah, that would be kind of an interesting off. sort of dude yeah. you know rolls off the tongue yeah texarkana man yeah. sounds like a it's a cool title too for a book or something like Something, yeah. Oh, I'm glad you like. Well, here's my aphorism. It's in a it's in a different register than they normally are, and it's uh, it's a request from uh, for the world to. Uh, there should be a word for the rhythmic silence of an aquarium in a very still room. Hmm. And I think that speaks to a lot of little. Um, you know, uh, we're, our vocabulary in uh, Harold Budd, the uh, late Harold Budd, a beautiful sort of ambient musician, pianist, I think a real genius, played often with Rob, um, Brian Eno, big influence on, on me. Uh, he made a point about a lot of, a whole realm of emotional, psychological experience that is, is completely lacking in vocabulary, even from some of our best poets. And that's what he was trying to address musically and he comes around to saying well maybe there isn't a, you know a, a way to deal with it in language maybe that's the point maybe it needs visual art or music but those sort of little things are good for language people to think about you know to be expanding yeah. language to suit our psychological experiences you know 
What's the word for the chill that runs down your spine when uh, it first starts to rain and you hear a rumble of thunder? And it's it's sublime. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, maybe maybe sublime is the closest thing, but that's more the a descriptor of the of the overall experience. But that specific chill, I don't think we have a word for that. The Japanese are pretty good at coming up for with words for these kinds of things, but uh, I don't speak Japanese. I'd like to see a public art form where there was some kind of you know civic garden space, maybe reclaimed land, where people could you know you know put these kind of notes in, you know just just sort of plant mm -hmm. them, mm -hmm. and maybe there would be some visual art and some some music some tape music uh, or or uh, musical instruments as in kind of wind chime sort of related things or whatever. A sound garden, you know. So you created this kind of garden of difficult uh, experiences that that are that don't have easy expressions. And uh, wouldn't that be cool, you know? And it would look kind of the garden of difficult experiences. Yeah, that's a great title. Yeah, yeah. thank you. I, th I think that would really be a great thing, you know. And talk about diversity and inclusion. I mean, you know, that would be. Uh, a dramatic performance of that, you know, uh, certainly an invitation, you know? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yeah. Well, I think that's great. That's maybe my favorite one so far. I, I think that that was just killer. So on that note, I'll try to meet you in kind as this child uh, drinks from his cup and kicks me in the face occasionally. What is my imaginative challenge? Okay, we're going to get right into it. We're going to get right into mythography, using the mechanics of myth in real time to, uh, to do some creating. Uh, so you're going to have three different uh, scenarios from which to choose to build your mythology. But uh, as background, I'm going to say, let's look at the Minoan uh, labyrinth story the Minotaur. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. uh, just as a quick reminder, uh, we have an idea that the ruler of uh, Mino, of Crete, uh, his wife got obsessed with a bull and called upon Daedalus, the, the genius inventor figure, to construct uh, a kind of <laughs> contraption that made her look like a female, you know, cow. Mm -hmm. And uh, mm -hmm. she made it with the bull, as you do, and uh, created a monster in the Minotaur, uh, ashamed of this creation and ashamed of his wife's lechery. Um, the king uh, established, you know, charged Dallas with creating a labyrinth a great maze in which to hide the Minotaur. Um, but one interpretation of, of this is that, uh, that it's really based on very historical sort of uh, context, that the myth could preserve a memory of a time, say, when the maze of, of Knossos' rooms and corridors were overrun by a revolting Greek force, uh, searching not for the mythical beast, but King Minos himself, as the representative mm -hmm. of an oppressive dynasty. Uh, so the whole Ariadne thesis, Theseus, uh, Minotaur, all of that stuff 
is a beautiful, magical, legendary, mythological treatment of a historic, politically driven uprising. You know, let's kill the mm -hmm. king. We're we're taking over this island. Um, so that, and that's often the way myths are interpreted, isn't it? So I want you to think in reverse of to mythologize and magicify uh, as if for some distant, you know, post-apocalyptic uh, stuttering and muttering uh, in the tin cans of tomorrow uh, people. The myth of Ben and J-Lo, that's choice number one. <laughs> choice number two is Will Smith and the slap heard round the world. And choice three is the FBI raid on a certain golf country club in Florida, Mara. Oh, good choices. Good. Okay, good so choices. you can choose one of those three to then put into the magic myth machine to blow out into a kaleidoscope of wonder and monstrous strangeness for some future uh, gas-masked audience. Okay. Reminds me of uh, Ridley Walker. Yeah. Um, yeah. Where where there's a, you know, the bomb has gone off. We and we're three thousand years in the future, and their their mythology is of uh, the the god Yusa, like USA, who caused this big you know destructive force to to kind of ruin everything. Yeah, and the little um, shining man, you know, the little mm -hmm, shining man, mm -hmm. the autumn. You know, it's like yep, okay, yep, all yep, right. Yep. Well, okay, cool. I I think um, I think, well, the Will Smith one is kind of it's kind of like the Minotaur story, isn't it? I mean, you've got a cuckold and <laughs> oh oh yeah. Okay, look, don't give away your choice. Waiting okay. waiting right. to hear which direction you're going to go, and I think could be a great form of gambling. You know. Uh, you know, which way is David going to go? And you're kind of in a labyrinth there, you know? So, uh, yeah, no, no, hold that back until the end and, and a full reveal of your mythos. Yes, I will. Okay, sounds good. And uh, just so everybody's updated, uh, I'm, I'm not thinking that this kid is going to go to sleep again. Um, so, the dread. Uh, I, I say this basically just for all the parents listening. You, you know exactly, you all know exactly what I'm feeling right now. So this will be a very interesting episode as the, uh, what is it? It's not, not, not anxiety and it's not depression. It's a creeping sense of dread for the rest of the day that's beginning to, to color my thoughts. But on that note, what, what are we going to talk about? Well, I think this falls uh, still within our, uh, you know, framework of, of, of history, questioning the nature of history whether or not history will be possible in the future. We've been kind of on a dissective role of this. Uh, and also looking at sort of monuments and artifacts. We talked about Michael Heiser and, and his completion after 50 years of work of his monumental creation in the Nevada desert called The City. I did want to mention something, though, in regard to that, which a friend of mine pointed out, and that I had kind of dropped the ball on because it's one of my obsessions. I, I don't know why I didn't. I think it is worth thinking about the city in regard to Area 51. They are, they are near each other, and they are two of the strangest gated communities in a 
in Nevada, in a state famous for Nevada, you know, for gated communities. And I think that is worth a discussion. Um, and I'm thinking about, I don't know, maybe doing a little short uh, kind of video uh, lecture that will sort of just, you know, kind of an added value thing, that, or that you and I might just do that as a separate kind of discussion point, because it is something important. Um, those are two uh, weird uh, geographic and psychogeographic uh, occurrences pretty close to each other and I think there's something weird going on with that but um, here is my thought about uh, I'm, I'm back uh, in a teaching mode looking at uh, rhetoric um, and I thought well, I always like to review the invention of rhetoric which is pretty solidly uh, the ancient Greeks there's no real question about that there have been great orators oratory traditions of course but the the Greeks had a real angle on this and uh, what struck me is when I go back through and I, I'm really I've spent a lot of time thinking about the pre-Socratics we begin with a huge movement of proto-science in terms of Thales and, and Eximenes and uh, Parmenides uh, Pythagoras real investigation of the natural world questions about what, are the, what, what is the essential composition of the world? Is it one thing or many? And then big questions about the nature of change. Is change real or is this all kind of an illusion? And behind the veil, if we could penetrate it, there is some sort of eternal non-changing world. So there's a huge starting point for Greek philosophy that, that I think is still very recognizable and resonates with, with you and me. You know physics and metaphysics you know they're really tracing that out that's that's really where they're they're at and then suddenly we have the rise of what are called the sophists and the invention of rhetoric uh, the beginnings of, of dialectic and a focus not on any kind of, of material science or immaterial speculation about spirit and soul they're really interested in language, and they're really interested in persuasion, and the vulnerability of any position, and the fragility of knowledge, perhaps even the impossibility of knowledge. And they are distinct from the group that we actually call the cynics, but they are pretty cynical in colloquial terms. Uh, it's pretty much, you know, nothing is real, nothing is true, just start with the irony and the rhetoric and just dismantle someone's position to no real point other than winning, you know, political, other than a kind of Machiavellian. They, they are direct uh, precursors of the Machiavellian L. Ron Hubbard positions in terms of, of political advice and some of the, the great Chinese thinking on that front too. Um, but it's pretty negative, you know, it's pretty, uh, there's not a lot of fun and excitement to it. It's other than like, yeah, okay, you won the argument, but you, you look like a dick, you know. Um, but what's interesting to me is, and what this uh, latest uh, investigation really reminded me, is that the first great flowering of Greek thought, which is distinct in the world, we may not like, we may think, well, it's Eurocentric and all of it. Well, tough, you know. They asked some questions in some ways that no one else that we know of had. 
and they came up with ways to record some answers and start some discussions that no one else did. So tough luck to anyone who really takes that on. Uh, they came about during a, a distinct period in Greek history and as diffuse as the islands, you know, it is a kind of archipelago nation, like Indonesia in a way, um, of kingliness, of, of, of definite rulers and dynasties, you know, and order and structure, even tyrants. Um, and we see, you know, flickers of this also within, within Chinese culture of some of the really strong dynastic periods were also tremendously rich in inquiry, investigation, art, the advancement of, of the intellect, the mind, and the curiosity of culture. And then when the sophists came along, and what in fact led to their rise was the fall of the kingly states, the emergence of democratic republics, supposedly so much more liberal, progressive, diverse, inclusive, you know, all these good things. Well, I wonder about that because it, it, what we got was the worship of the individual, the impossibility of knowledge, really, uh, a very uh, cynical, ironic, negative take on culture. Um, and fortunately, it exhausted itself and certainly was, was put to... Uh, to shreds when uh, Socrates came along. But, but really, Socrates, his emergence, both uh, what we know directly of him and what we know of him via Plato, was really a response, a critique, an attack on the emptiness and solipsistic, self-centered, uh, self-satisfied nature of the sophists and the rhetoric of the individual. So. I wonder, you know, if that isn't a, a pretty, dis, you know, obvious analog for the, the period that we're in now. Goodness knows anything goes, you know. We want to break down all authority structures. We want to dismantle any kind of frameworks and systemic, you know, uh, programs. Although we sure want the infrastructure, the roads to work and, you know, the electricity grid to work. It's unfortunate those are systems. Oh, dear. You know, uh, it's all this, re you know, rejection of authority. Nobody wants to be the parent figure. No one wants to take charge or responsibility because then they'll be criticized and liable and they'll have to issue an apology that no one's going to believe and on and on and on. And, but underlying it, we have a real war against uh, the possibility of knowledge, the grounds of authority, the ethos of authority. You know, unless it's, you know, maybe, a, you know, someone like Dr. Fauci for a moment in a very specific context. But then that gets thrown out, too. So we get this cultural relativism, chaos, uh, build your own burger individualism that's really just kind of empty and dead. And, and where is the, the ceremonial magic? Where are the mystery religions? Where is the investigation of the first cause? You know, it looks pretty empty, you know. So that's my suggestion as a discussion point. Check. All right, and we're good, and we're back. Whew, that was very, indeed, very suspenseful. My dog is clawing at the door to get back in, and there's a metaphor in here somewhere. Uh, my, my backyard is covered in all this beautiful shade from 
uh, what was it, cedar, no, oak trees, elm trees, elm trees. Uh, so it's got all this wonderful shade, and she wants, when she wants to get back in, she goes to the screen door, obviously, and she'll spend, you know, hours clawing at this door, um, not thinking about the fact that she's standing on the one concrete platform in direct sunlight that exists in the entire backyard. <laughs> so in a sense, she's kind of torturing herself. Uh, but um, but she can't come in. She lost she lost that privilege when she woke him up the first time. Yes, but to your point and to what this episode is going to be about, I think that that is the movement. What I'm interested in what you're saying here is, and it's been something that I've been trying to articulate for quite some time, is that when you're arguing with people on Facebook, which I do not do anymore, or arguing with people on Twitter, which I also don't do, but let's say you were to do that, it really does seem to get into, it, it becomes this kind of game, and the only thing that really matters is who gets to win the game, right? Mm -hmm. I personally am very interested in real debate. Uh, there are very few real debaters left, people, what I used to do when I would argue with people online, I would say, first off, before we even get into this, is there is there anything, is there any f future scenario that you can imagine in which you change your opinion after this discussion? And many of them were honest, and they said no. And I said, well, then we're not going to have it, right? Right. Um, but I saw this fantastic tweet the other day uh, about something related, to, it was some silly subject about... Uh, Oh, children, right? Right. So this woman said, um, you know, if you if you shame children for lashing out in public, you're being ableist because the children are, you know, essentially not mentally able to control themselves in public. And then this response was, well, actually, the children are being ableist because they don't understand my sensory disorder where everything is just too intense for me to deal with. And so you had these two, <laughs> these two women arguing about which was more ableist. Um, and that, to me, just perfectly summed up this co-option of, of an idea, right? So we take the idea ableism, and it actually really works. I mean, handicap parking is a great thing. Handicap accessibility um, in buildings, I think, is very, very important. I think that having sign language interpreters for the hearing impaired at government uh, uh, meetings is, uh, is very important. I mean, we do have subtitles on TV, um, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. All that's really good. But these two women are taking that idea and using it to just, basically what the first woman is saying is that if you hear a kid screaming in public and you act like a dick, uh, then you're a dick because children are children and you're an adult and you should just deal with it. And then the other woman, if she was to be speaking plainly and honestly, she would say, well, I don't, I don't care. I hate the sound of children screaming in public. Control your kids. But she can't say that, right? Because that sounds unempathetic. It sounds, um, well, it sounds honest. And so what you end up with is two people arguing about the ableism angle of the whole thing. Right, right. Well, you know, here's, I think, uh, you know, one of the, the, the points of difference between uh, the sophist phase of ancient Greece uh, 
you know, and, and put that into historical perspective, we're thinking in terms of, you know, 500 years BC. Uh, so it's interesting, you know, how long, you know, and a, a, a relatively high level of, uh, you know, education, uh, cultural discussion, debate was possible and, and sort of expected then, you know, and yes, uh, on an aristocratic basis perhaps, but not entirely so. Uh, there were many sort of pretty major figures uh, in, in Greek intellectual history and therefore world history who were not, um, you know, not of, of means, not of, of social prominence other than via their teachings, their, their approach to things. Um, I wonder, you know, if what we have today is, is not so much, I mean, it, for starters, we don't have the rhetorical, you know, genius of that that time you know people are not really gifted in terms of making an argument we there are there are there have never been in the last 50 years very many Christopher Hitchens type of people you know uh, we just don't have that level of discourse uh, so that that's already a problem we have a linguistic and intellectual deficiency even though the same kind of orientation but one thing that you can say about uh, the, the sophists and the entire approach of rhetoric, not as a communication strategy or tool, but as a philosophical position, they were very, very open about the war that they were conducting. Uh, and their war was against the possibilities of knowledge, the nature mm -hmm. of meaning, the possibility of soul and connection with the universe. They, it was a really uh, hardened, uh, empty, uh, negative, heartless position they were putting forward. Kind of like a toxic uh, psychic uh, recommendation to culture that that really was what mm. was going mm -hmm. on. Uh, mm -hmm. Though that's what the 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 the, the real um, the experts would have said in private, and um, I think that there's a sincerity in that, even though it's a, it's an awfulness. And I'll I'll give a point of contrast. I, uh, I last night I dipped back into Tarrant, one of Terence McKenna's lectures. And I, I just needed a hit of his wonderful, eccentric voice, you know, like the scientific genius version of um, Truman Capote's voice, you know. And, uh, yeah. and he's, yeah. he's at Esalen for an extended thing, and he's, he's just on a roll. I mean, it is just, you know, and you admire the same, the fluency uh, in real time is, is just breathtaking. He makes, he drops one stitch over an hour and 15 minutes. He credits a quote from uh, Macbeth to Hamlet. But he is moving between at least 15 major subject areas with such awesome, awesome, beautiful uh, fluency and, and capability. But his point is something that we, uh, touched on, and I, I, I draw some influence uh, from him, but although I sort of arrived at it from another point of view. Uh, he's looking back at, he, he, the topic of his whole uh, presentation is 
the mystical metaphysical influence on supposedly hard-edged empirical science. And he looks at people like Descartes. And, uh, and then he gets into the hardcore people of the 19th century. Darwin, Huxley, T.H. Huxley, his great uh, defender, proponent. And Lyle, the geographer, who uh, geologist who uh, made you know, a lot of, of Darwin's thinking possible. In contrast to the spiritualist uh, Mellow uh, Wallace, you know, who arrived at the theory of that from such a cool point of view. Um, McKenna's argument is very pointedly that Darwin, Huxley, Lyle, and their confederates, their number one priority was not biological. It was completely a war on Christianity. It was on any way possible to deconstruct, deny, and ultimately quarantine any kind of, of notion of God uh, in a Christian sense. Um, I mean, it was really that they were the attack dogs building on, you know, I mean, Nietzsche said, yeah, God is dead. Uh, they, they really wanted that to happen. And, and the, their biology, their so-called science, uh, really needs to be considered in that light because they were carrying some big torches of ideological vested interest belief, you know? Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And I, I really, I mean, I just encourage people to read the beautiful, uh, the difference between Wallace and later Darwin. Uh, Darwin's on the voyage of the Beagle when he was your age, like 32. Look, read that, and there's a joy in living. There's, there's, there's a young man out to see the world and seeing it, you know, without a big mm -hmm. agenda. You, you know, 30 years later, uh, 25 years later, there's a sick old grumpy man who just, you know, is a very different, you know, character, and his program is very different. And it's simply, yeah, we just don't like God, you know. And, and a right, lot of people right. will dismiss that. Well, there's a fine. Let them get into a, a sophist rhetorical dispute with me about that. There's a lot of very strong argument about this, and I would much rather be on the side of a Terence McKenna than uh, right. you know a Dawkins right. or Dennett. You know. Yeah, yeah. What the, what you're talking about that kind of fluency is something that you don't see. I watched an interview with Dawkins a couple of months ago. And I was amazed at how many questions he, he didn't answer. You see this with a lot of science-minded people. And it's important to have science-minded people in the world, people who do have the ability to say, well, I don't know, so I'm not going to speculate on that. But what's so interesting is that McKenna was a, a rampant speculator. Mm. But he also, you know, he didn't make claims necessarily. He told stories and he wove things together and he guided his audience to an interpretation based on the things that he was saying. But with somebody like Doc, you know, this is where my knowledge ends, but this is what I know for sure. And that's supposed to be a vote of confidence for people, but for me it's the exact opposite. Like listening to uh, a Terrence McKenna or an Alan Watts or, you know, any of these guys whose recordings are on um, YouTube now for free. It's just this, I mean, why would you be on Twitter when you can just listen to Terrence McKenna instead? But um, really quickly, though, uh, for, partially for me and partially for the listeners, can you, can you explain to me what your understanding of a, 
of a, of a sophist's argument would look like? Yeah, yeah, I can. I mean, I think that we because I think I think I think I think we know the term sophistry, right? Yes. But, um, yeah. Sorry. Go ahead. Well, their 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 program is really uh, erosion of of any mm -hmm. principles upon which to have a discussion at all. So it's kind of an argument against any level of understanding because once you deny the po you know the possibility of knowledge in a great epistemological sense you really then peel back the layers down to well how can even a simple conversation take hold you know which is really kind of where they get to um, so a lot of it is is really hinging on uh, stuff that we've talked about in terms of way before Gil Gilbert Ryle you know started talking about categories of language they were pointing out how uh, the same word can be used in two very different contexts. So they deconstruct, and they were way ahead of Derrida uh, on, on those sort of levels of showing that at the sentence level, language is so unstable that meaning and the concept of semantics are so unstable that nothing can be decided upon at all. Um, so right. let me try to... Um, I, that should help a little bit in that regard. So they're really working at a very fundamental uh, sort of level. Um, but let me... Uh, some of it just so bores me that I, I, I get so upset with them that I, I find sure. it difficult to... Um, well, no, I mean, we, we don't... We don't have, I, think that, I think that was perfectly... Uh, that was perfectly adequate to, for the purposes of this. And I think that in this day and age it might be more interesting to take take a radical 180 from the sophists and uh believe everything in a charles fort sense right this goes back to things that we've talked about in the past where if you are moving between cultures between mythologies between different ideas of truth it's more interesting beneficial and soul affirming to instead say that there's meaning in all of it, right? But what the, the meaning that you take from it is going to take a little bit of work because it's not going to be able to be handed to you on a platter by PolitiFact or something like that. Um, you know, which is, that's definitely informed my worldview. So it seems that there's, uh, you know, this, this whole, uh, you know, they're not being able to be any kind of meaning uh, reminds me, like, you had mentioned with Derrida's uh, of postmodernism, basically, like no, there's no real, there's no real truth. So you can just kind of do, you can just be whatever. I'm trying to think of something that I saw yesterday, where oh yes, yes, yes this uh, this guy said uh, you can be an introvert and still be loud and boisterous at parties and have a lot of friends. Um, that's not what an introvert is. Right? <laughs> no. An introvert, right? And so it's this break, and it seems that to me that the connection that you're making, and I think it's a good one, is that there's a direct link here between the, you, you always bring up the build your own burger thing, that when you break down uh, words to have no meaning whatsoever in a, in a so, sophist kind of, sophist kind of way, what it really allows you to do is to wear concepts and identities like clothes, right? And you can also 
wield them as weapons. They become rhetorical weapons that you can use. Because, you know, if you claim to have uh, some sort of mental illness, nobody can really prove that. But now in this context, that could be used as your, as your final, your, your trump card, so to speak in any argument you get into into it with people, right? Like, well, I'm a, you know, neurodivergent, uh, autistic, like, of course, none of these are clinical diagnoses. These are things that people have decided for themselves. <laughs> and so what you're doing to me is actually a hate crime, end of argument. I've seen this happen so many times over the past, I don't know, 10 years, that it's gotten to the point of being ridiculous. Well, this is unfortunately what's really happened. If you collapsed all of time and said that today, as in our period, is somehow immediately uh, contiguous adjacent to the, the rise of the Sophists in ancient Greece, all that we've really done is, is taken their best rhetorical methods, denigrated the hell out of them, and exaggerated the worst elements. And really, we've we've we followed their their kind of uh, the tonality of their worldview, and lost any appreciation of their actual skills. You know, the ability to I mean, their training was was some of the classic debate training: be able to defend a position that's entirely opposite to the one that you actually personally hold, which is a great you know that is a great discipline, uh, and unfortunately. Uh, it's, it's something that's very difficult to practice today in educational, real practical terms because uh, of the liberal fascist agenda that's in place. Um, you know, you don't want to, to let people actually have any kind of open debate that isn't on point, isn't on woke agenda terms. Uh, but some of those techniques were really terrific ways to, to prosecute truth. I mean, out of rhetoric came dialectic. And it was not a way of persuading people solely, of, of making a, a proactive, assertive argument. It was also right. an analytic tool, you know, it was an analytic yeah, synthesis. tool. synthesis. Yeah, a way of breaking down, and it was it, it kind of a, a form of psychic defense, a way of dismantling arguments and worldviews <laughs> coming at you, uh, and so that you could, in, in, in open-handed and good-hearted terms, good faith terms anyway, Come, come to terms with, with uh, things coming at you from, from the larger world and, and the populace, you know, from the marketplace. Uh, and so that you wouldn't, you know, just be just smashed into an introverted, scared mode or just be a befuddled, you know, couch potato, you know. You'd be able to think <laughs> a little bit for yourself. Critical thinking is what sophistry should have really been. It was the tonal right. problem, the underlying ah. tonal direction. And this, is, this was, right. in my mind, the link to Darwin, Lyle, and Huxley. There was nothing wrong. I mean, their scientific sort of point of view, their program, was the same as Wallace's. And it, it had the same uh, tremendous advantages and the same vulnerabilities. <laughs> but where they had a kind of tight-ass, shriveled genital uh, mean-spirited approach to, to life. Uh, not so much Huxley, but that's certainly Darwin and Lyle. Uh, Wallace was like just wonderful and someone you would have loved to have gone, you know, out looking for butterflies in Indonesia with, or the Amazon, you know? Mm, uh, mm -hmm, mm -hmm, and for mm -hmm. anyone, anyone, anywhere 
who ever has a bad day, and I mean a really bad day, up to like a terminal diagnosis, I strongly recommend doing some research into Wallace's response to the ship fire and sinking that he was involved in that cost him all of his specimens from South America. Years, years mm -hmm. of work in, you know, relentless jungle conditions. He moved on from that, you know, he really did. He rolled with it. And because he was a warm sort of Walt Whitman sort of, you know, uh, yeah. cool hippie dude. And Darwin was a mean old man who wasn't mm -hmm. that old. He even looks like it. He even looks like it when you look at his pictures. He doesn't look like a guy you'd want to have a beer with. No. You know? um, and this is important. Some people might be listening and say, well, what does it matter if they're just, if they're nice or not? Who cares about being nice? Which I think is a real problem of this of this age is that you know what i've noticed is that people adopt rhetorical positions that place themselves at a kind of center of like this moral centrifuge right from which everything else in their life becomes good by being a part of it and what it does to a lot of people is it turns them into dickheads yeah like you just you'll just see them uh you know online I'm thinking of one prominent New York Times best-selling author uh, whose, whose film had, was turned into a very good movie uh, directed by Alex Garland. That's all the hints that I'll give. Um, he's a, he's a big-time uh, animal rights activist. He's a big-time nature guy. He's a big-time, uh, you know, let's do something about climate change guy. All of that is fine. But I was friends with this person on Facebook so not friends in the traditional sense of the word, but friends on Facebook with this person for seven or eight years, and it was just every single day I would see him being, uh, you know, unusually nasty and mean to his fans online, scolding them for asking questions because he, you know, how many times do I have to tell you? I've already answered this before. If you ask me this question again, you'll get blocked to some, you know, housewife in Ohio, who is, you know, so excited that she gets to talk to her favorite author. Um, just like a mean and nasty person. And that's a real problem. It's, a pr it's been a problem with the church in the past, uh, and now it's a problem with our current ideology, which is that if you, th if you again, if you adopt these rhetorical strategies that are quote-unquote morally good, it allows lazy people off the hook from actually being good people, right? So my response to that is to actually, I'm friends with a lot of people uh, who other people find to be, uh, well, problematic because of the things that they believe or who they vote for or whatever. But my response to that is, well, I like them though. I like their attitude. I like that they're friendly. I like that they're funny. I like that they're, they're interesting and they seem to always be thinking about things, which leads them to places that you will never go because you've, you've got this ironclad morality about you. So I think it is really important. I think not being a dick is one of the most important things going right now. I think that's really well said, you know, and it, it really works across the entire spectrum of 
intellect, education, class, orientation, wherever you are in the world, anyone can get with that and understand it. And the reason is because I think it is a universal idea. And it's something that can be recognized pretty much, you know, almost on site. It's a, it's a, it's a survival skill to recognize dickness in people. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> you know, it, it isn't on the level of, you know, grand moral evil or, you know, uh, a survival, you know, fight or flight level of danger, maybe. But on the other hand, it is. You know, it's, it's that little niggling sense of, oh, this is a weak part of, of the equipment, you know, of the expedition equipment, uh, you know. And the first time, okay, that's happenstance. Second time is coincidence. Third time, that's enemy action. You know, so you're on the way with dickness, you know, plus you don't really need any explanation to dislike dicks, you know, I, th- I, I think that's the beautiful thing about it. The moment you, and really there is, there's no need for a rhetorical position there because all you have to, to do is, is simply uh, try to, uh, pull the ripcord and, and, and get away, you know? Run away, run away, you know, that's it. Yeah. <clears throat> yep, yep, exactly. But I think your diagnosis of this this sophist idea coming back around and being a real problem is, uh, is right on the money. I see it manifested every single day when I peek at social media. I see it uh, with people who, well, there's a tension there, right? Because on the one hand, they do seem to believe in some absolute moral truths uh but on the other hand they they do seem to be they seem to be very reductive and able to break things we're talking about like less um you know moral beliefs and more this uh rhetorical ability when when approached by a you know an enemy to to break arguments up into pieces that are, you know, either pedantic, semantic, whatever, um, to get to the point to where they quote unquote win an argument without any either party or any spectator coming away with any new insight. Well, exactly right, and I I, I think you know, to, to tie this sort of back all around to uh, certainly to what McKenna was saying <coughs> about the. Uh, the, the 19th century uh, evolutionary sort of um, thinkers and their their real war, their real purpose was the uh, an attack on Christianity uh, and the sophists of ancient Greece they were really against the idea of, of knowledge, the possibility of knowledge at all because that might mean someone is smarter than someone else, someone is more insightful someone is more you know mm, has the talented. inside yeah they they were afraid of that and they were picking up on the, this buzz of the individual and the way to to do that was of course to lower all standards to open uh, you know any point of view is as valid as any other point of view uh, and that was a message that a lot of people wanted to hear uh, and it's a message that a lot of people want to hear today and I think mm-hmm. that what what needs to be said about today is is not is to yes okay we'll grant 
certain genuine, sincere objectives within the so-called liberal, progressive, woke agenda, the emphasis on identity politics, which then oddly enough becomes herd, you know, politics, uh, H-E-R-D. But if we grant some positive, genuine, true, sincere, valid, you know, goals, and even if they're not achieved. Let's also then acknowledge to the the actual agenda of hatred and attack. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. let's call that out from from those nice progressive bright, you know, shadows. They are bright shadows. Mm-hmm. So they're shadows nonetheless. Mm-hmm. And I think we need to call those people out for, you know, because it's not all positive. There's a lot of tremendous seething anger. Uh, there's a feeling of uh, marginalization, yeah, because they don't fit in anywhere. A lot of those people that they're trying to appeal they're dicks. to, yeah, you know, they're they they're not willing to take any responsibility for themselves. Well, there's always someone else to blame. Well, the, every day a new huckster comes along with a spiel like this, the 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 sophists of old of this is who you can blame, this is who mm-hmm. you can. You know, you're not overweight or disenfranchised or depressed or anxious or whatever because of anything that you're doing wrong. We have got an agenda of and a, a hit list of people for you to hate, and that will, you know, ease some of your disenfranchisement. You know, and that's really the you know that program is is if we just accept that that's what it is. Uh, then we can maybe get back to some of the positive goals that they are trying to, that some of the sincere, capable people within that larger agenda framework, I, I think some of them really are you know, uh, worthy and, and really trying, and, and they believe what they mm-hmm. say, and some of those things are good, and I totally agree with too. Um, but I think we've got to have a, a, a more open-minded, open-handed, full embrace of what the sophistry of our time really entails. Yeah, you're not you're not uh, fickle. You have obsessive compulsive personality disorder. You're not uh, a, a lazy, uh, you know, TV watching, Doritos munching, couch potato. You actually, it's the reason your stomach hurts because you have a gluten intolerance, right? That there's a there's just all these these reasons these uh, genetic deeply ingrained expressions of your DNA that make it so that it's really nothing's ever really your fault and <laughs> there should be warnings and, on on everything oh wait there are, there are warnings on everything oh wow oh, yeah. well. did you know that did you know that coffee can be hot at times it's uh well if you didn't know we wrote it on the cup yeah um, <laughs> yeah, and don't feed the Cub Scouts any of those peanuts. Oh no, we don't. We can't have Cub Scouts anymore either, can we? No. Okay. Yeah. I started feeding Gus peanut butter as soon as he was able to ingest it without choking because I we're not playing the peanut allergy game here. Like we're ex- we nuts nuts are such a superfood. They're really slept on by by a lot of people and it. You know, there was a, I will never forget working at a grocery store and there being a woman who wouldn't even put her food on the conveyor belt 
because peanuts had been on it and she had everything that she was buying wrapped up in the the plastic bags used for grabbing lemons and she was wearing a mask uh before this was years before covid um and i just remember thinking like i think if that was me and that and i was really afflicted with something like that i might kill myself because what a way to live you know Oof. under constant threat of being killed by a peanut that uh you know you, you might you might just take yourself out and try again better luck next time maybe um yeah but uh, I'm, 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 I'm very, it's not that I'm skeptical necessarily of people's allergies. I'm skeptical of the, the things that they do to combat the allergies. I think in, in many respects, I, this is my prediction. It, you know, it's one of the safe predictions because it probably won't happen until well after I'm dead. But when people look back and in the kind of mad men sense of like, isn't it funny that they were all smoking? Back then, didn't they know that smoking was bad for you? I think that the allergy thing, people are going to find out. It's like, oh, like you had a bad reaction to something, and then you took a bunch of drugs that actually made that problem worse. So my theory that I have no scientific backing for is that you know popping a Zyrtec when you have seasonal allergies is gonna, it's just gonna make that that worse. It probably has more to do with the smog that we're constantly living with than anything else but i'm rambling and i'm going to get myself into trouble because i'm completely talking out of my ass so i'll just leave that well i'll round that up with one thought and i i i notice it uh with the students that uh i'm exposed to now who are fortunately that they it's just really good you know basic if there is a working middle class in, in left in America anymore. They are the children of it. They're very pragmatic, down-to-earth, good energy. You know, I like them. I like their spirit. Uh, mm -hmm. They're so different than the affluent, entitled, privileged, whining uh, students the same age from more uh, affluent circumstances. And I think they are, uh, without being cynical, the my group without they're not cynical they're not sort of snarky and ironic necessarily not in general terms anyway but they're not um they're not fools either and they're they're not as easily sort of won over by all this you know safe space trigger warning allergy thing i think it's a real class divide and i think it's um yeah it's going to uh, become more and more apparent and I think that the people who are on the, in the, the entitled safe space, allergy sort of lingo, they, they really think that is communicating class distinctions. They think that they're saying, well, I'm an NPR listener and I shop at Whole Foods and I only want, yep. you know, I'll drive a, you know, a hybrid car or, you know, maybe a Tesla, mm -hmm. you know. And they're making a whole bunch of social statements. And they're going to be seen increasingly as doing that. And I think they're going to find that it's a little bit harder to get their air conditioning worked on. And that maybe if they have a roofing problem, you know, that they're going to have more uh, needs to get, you know, counter quotes. Because they're going to get some different treatment from the people who are more pragmatic and they're going to complain more and more about it and they're going to have more mm -hmm. allergies and more anxiety and more you know they're going to need to go to you know specialized yoga classes and you know because they've creating this uh, antagonism with common sense 
Mm-hmm. There's uh, there was a woman sitting next to Rios, and I took her to a, a very late birthday dinner at a, at a very expensive, restaurant, very expensive restaurant. We can do that once a year, and it's for her birthday because it's so expensive. But sitting next to us was an affluent couple, older, and the woman asked the waiter. Uh, if some of their thing, like a lot of their food was vegan and a lot of it's gluten free, and she said, "Well, I see that a lot of this is gluten free, but is the gluten free food cooked in the same area and with the same utensils as the non gluten free food?" And the waiter said, uh, "Yes, yes," and she and she kind of became consternated about that. She ended up ordering food because what are you going to do? Like you can't, you're not just going to leave. But I thought that was such a fascinating, it's like, come on, lady, what are you talking about? Yeah, yeah. like, it might have, it's that you, like, don't let my, like, the thing kids do, where, like, their peas and their mashed potatoes can't touch, or, or the whole thing's ruined. It's like, come on, be practical. Um, yeah, sorry. And maybe do some research beforehand, you know? I don't know, that, that <laughs> might be a thought. I mean, if you... You know, if you need a wheelchair go and you're going to the airport, well, maybe just call and have it reserved. You know, I don't know. It a little bit of advance warning for you know the world. You know, it's like mm-hmm. I don't know. It's just maybe some thought about everything, but yeah. I think yeah. that it's interesting that you overheard. I mean, that's a big question, isn't? It? I think we should all think about this. What are the things that we overhear? Because we're we're generally speaking pretty inattentive, you know. We're not there are not many Solomon Islanders amongst us, so we're not really paying attention. Even bright, capable, interested people, curious people like us, you know, it's it's not really something that we're picking up on all the time. So when you do overhear something, I don't think it's overheard. I think there's probably been some intentionality that someone has really tried to, you know. They're not just worried about being, you know, being overheard. They want to be overheard. I think she wanted you to hear that, you know. True. Yeah. Yeah. If I, if you're getting a message, there's there's a messenger, essentially. Um, I'm sure she did want. Yeah, because she, you know, she did end up ordering the food. So, I mean, why even ask? It's such a stupid question that she had to have known the answer to, right? I mean. A, I don't know of restaurants that have separate, you know, grills and stoves and utensils for their gluten-free. I mean, that's not practical at all. No, Um, no, it's not. You know, (laughs) wouldn't it be great? I just saw this as a movie scene. Wouldn't this have been fantastic if right after she said that, you know, just like a two-beat pause, your character just suddenly interjects and said, I just want you to know that, that the dick judgment is in place and you're, you're right on the edge right now. I've, I've, I've got the scorecard right here. We're, we'll check you. back you, you know, with our the audience at home. You know, and just imagine how that would have affected, like, oh, wait a minute, I'm on the border. I, I haven't been declared a dick yet, but I, I could go that way. What, I, what come yeah. on? Maybe yeah. I should order the food, you know. <laughs> And, uh, yeah, your response to the answer to this question is going to do a lot of heavy lifting. <laughs> oh, and that would be, uh, you know, that could be like a great, great show. Almost a dick, you know? Almost a dick. You know? It's like, oh, we're getting, yeah. You have like so a. So close. Yeah. 
a guy like the whole scene freezes. We can use our technology now yeah. to come out and be like, "Oh, so you'll notice that we're inching dangerously close into Dick territory." She hasn't necessarily done anything wrong yet, but boy, is she she's teetering right there on that edge. Great audience participation possibility. People betting, you know, you could really do a beautiful. Th- I could think almost a dick. It's it's perfect, you know. Yeah. Well, I am. Um, we certainly do welcome any uh, responses about you know any of of our show topics. Uh, we we are definitely wanting to you know get engagement with these issues. We don't expect people to just wholesale uh, agree with us on everything. Um, that would be kind of weird, uh, and it's certainly very unlikely. But on the other hand, I think it's uh, it's important to not dismiss any point of view because it doesn't appear to align with one's own. Uh, we don't have a depth of discussion uh, today. That, that justifies anything uh, like that kind of immediacy of response from even educated, uh, intelligent people today. We're just not grounded enough in, in the, uh, the fluency of mind, the fluency of language that we've had in the past. Uh, and when you do listen to someone like Terence McKenna or Christopher Hitchens, I'm trying to think of some other people who are in that real-time capable category. Uh, not just good speakers, but people bringing such a, a, a body of, of living, working knowledge, integrating it, you know, some really synthetic uh, erudition, uh, just performed with gorgeous improvisational capability. It's, uh, I mean, that's what I find awesome just in its own right, you know. We, we should be admiring that that capability regardless of, of what the point of view is of, of what's said and that would have been the best thing that the sophists of ancient Greece would have would have argued for they would have said that that was really important uh, they would have admired uh, McKenna and Hitchens and uh, you know other speakers capability with language and thought uh, ind- completely independent of whether or not they uh, they agreed with the point of view. So in that sense, what we've what we've gotten to is is very much an anti-softest point of view, which is a little bit strange. I wish we had more time to look into that because today it it, it really is not even the way something is said. Certainly not what is said. Uh, it's really who's saying it, what they look like. You know, that's a large part of everything, um, which is so, you know, superficial. It's, it's hard to believe that we can support that, but we, we actively do. Mm-hmm. Oh, there you are. I'm sorry. I was I'm just, back. I was just, uh, uh, you know, gl- Jackie Gleasoning in there with, uh, you know, live TV. That yeah. Kind of feel. Yeah. I don't know. No, I loved it. Yeah. It was, I was still listening. Oh, okay. I just, you know, I just, just had it on mute, but, uh, Okay. You ready to hear my? Yes, my yes. I'm. I have got my money down on which you choose, and I will <laughs> confess. Remember, we we gave David three options: Ben and J Lo, the Will Smith slap heard round the world, or the raid at Mar-a-Lago. Okay. Well, this is called 
<clears throat> the myth of Fabian and the Sun King. Now the name Fabian is fun because if you write it down or even think about it in your head, there are three little letters inside of that name that indicate who Fabian is. But in this story, it's the story of an architect who built some of the grandest buildings in all of the land. He was mostly well-liked by people until he eventually became involved in a lot of gossip and scandal and rumors and fell out of favor with the kingdom. While feeling dejected, living in one of his beautiful towers, he decides to take a trip. He takes a trip to, a, to an island. And there, the indigenous people introduce him to a magical bird, a beautiful blue bird. Now, if you have this bird under your control, the bird has this magical ability to whisper in the ears of the entire populace and shift their opinion about you. Well, this architect, this future sun king, decides that he is going to kidnap the bird and take it back to his tower. He does it and he begins using the bird to shift the people's opinion about him, but there's a side effect, as there always is, there's always a monkey's paw. The side effect of this is that some people, upon hearing the whisper of the bird, go completely and totally insane. So. The other half of the population begins to dismantle society. Things begin to fall apart. You have two groups of people who live in completely different worlds and order must be restored. Enter Fabian. So Fabian is a hero who has been tasked with helping the populace, but he too, he too is in disgrace because Fabian famously allowed two dragons to fly into the most beautiful towers in all of the land. So Fabian is a bit of a disgraced hero himself, but he plans and he plans and he plans, and finally he has, he has all the information he needs. He knows that the magic bird is in the Sun King's new beautiful alligator palace in the, in the swamps, out in the swamps. So Fabian fights his way in grabs the bird and saves the kingdom from the Sun King. But this is a story of history repeating itself because Fabian himself, a disgraced hero, now in possession of this bird, begins to wonder what he can tell the bird to tell the people. The end. Oh, that was breathtaking. Ah, I I love that so much. I think that could be a beautiful, uh, you know, something you could lay on a lot of different classes from the study of, of you know formal study of mythology and in a literature sense to uh, psychology to cultural history because there's something about how that worked. I mean. There are some obvious mechanical things that you're doing, but because you are a writer and imaginative person, it's done very, very gracefully. And the, and the, the immediacy of knowledge of how myths and storytelling works. Um, 
But I think yeah, that would be, you know, that's, this is why I think myths and fairy tales are good ways for people who aren't as fluent and imaginative as you are, that to, to help them become more so that way. Mm -hmm. I love that. I, I really did. I, I, I have to say, um, my, my money was on that choice of subject. But what happened to that, the, the, uh, the transmorgification of it was just beautiful. You know, it really, cool. it, it did change uh, many, many times. It, it, there's the shape. And I, I think that the dragons and the towers, I thought that was a lovely. And the idea of a disgraced hero, uh, particularly in, in Greek uh, terms, which is kind of the model we started with, uh, almost more so than any culture I can think of, the disgraced hero is a very important element, you know, and mm -hmm. it was something mm -hmm. that, that mm -hmm. the, the Greek public mind was very conscious of, of what goes into disgrace. Uh, interesting, so I think you can only really find that, uh, anything similar to that, in, in really in the Chinese, you know, we don't have that so yeah. much in, in, uh, in Indian thinking. I'm trying to think of any other culture where that's, uh, and the Romans kind of move uh, completely away from that. You know, it's just like, no, you don't deal with the disgraced here. They're dead or they just disappear or they're not worth talking about. We'll go for full steam ahead. We're Romans here. Um, right. <laughs> you know, but the Greeks did have some yeah. time for that. And I, I there's a lot of little, little really nice, subtle touches and uh, also a beautiful musicality. I, I heard a soundtrack to that that I thought was uh, some very, you know, uh, subtle but nonetheless uh, decisive uh, Greek influenced world music that would go along with that story so bravo yeah. another surprise Thanks. another surprise Thanks. well I'm glad I'm really glad you liked it I, <clears throat> I had all the notes sketched out about 15 minutes in and uh, again what's so fun about this is you know putting all the details together in the performance having to keep it all you know, what, what detail do I put in here? Um, yeah, I'm just really, I'm not going to go back in because of the past few episodes. It's been, David's been on a constant uh, just rant about journaling, performance, externalizing thought, art. Uh, so you can, if, if this is the first episode you're listening to, please, please go back through the archives. They're very rich. But, okay. Um, so we have a tool, a tip, a dream. I've got an interesting, very, very short dream as well that I think you'll you'll think is really cool. Uh, do you have a tool and a tip? Yeah, for us today? the tool I call hidden worldviews, and I think it's a deeper way to mm -hmm. look in very practical terms at what dialectic in that Socratic sense uh, was and what what it could be now. Uh, it does require some open-mindedness on another the part, you know, the part of another person, but it's a it's an interesting and interrogative way of of looking and at least exploring the possibility of maybe not truth, but getting a better grasp of what the immediate situation is. Let's just suppose that you're talking to someone and they use the expression "it was meant to be." Okay, something was meant to be. That's a very common sort of expression, isn't it? There's nothing huge and philosophically weighted in that necessarily. But let's suppose for a moment that we freeze frame. We have that concept in mind. We take a snapshot of that and we, we, we pause the conversation and we just look at the implications of that 
that phrase. It was meant to be. If you tease those out even for a few moments with someone pretty intelligent, you realize that that simple, very commonplace expression is enormously pregnant or freighted with uh, suppositions and, and a really intense worldview. We're starting to look at things being deterministic, predetermined. Uh, is there, are the fates involved? What's the metaphysics behind this, it was meant to be? By whom? How does it relate to other you know, events and occurrences? Are all occurrences meant to be? We can just start to do a little bit of a very mm -hmm. casual over coffee inventory with someone. We just start to flesh out the implications of this. And you know, you don't have to be exhausted, you don't have to be confrontational. But we just work out some, some implications or some reasonable inferences to draw from that statement. And we say to the person, all right, let's just assume for a moment that that really is your worldview, that that is a kind of religious philosophical position that is emblematic of where you're at, you know, in, in, a, in much grander and more uh, consistent, constant terms. And they would say, no, 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 well, no, they don't, they, you know, no, you know. Uh, and, uh, okay, then you'd say, all right, let's, let's look at how you diverge from that point. Uh, and very quickly, another kind of worldview with the same depth of possible implications or inferences that can be drawn emerges. And then the third question in a dialectic sense is, all right, well, if you don't really subscribe to the worldview of it was meant to be, or you don't do that all the time, and you don't agree with this other position all the time either, how are you shifting between these worldviews? How many other worldviews can you ent entertain? Are, there, are they unlimited? Does it go on and on and on? What's, what's directing your choice at any given moment? Because whether or not you're aware of these snapshots that, that can be taken, the snapshots are taking the picture of you, in fact. You know, that's what we don't, we don't want to think about, that the camera taking pictures of us. You know, that's, we get a little bit concerned. You know, we want to be the active, even if we're completely ignoring and just, you know, slack about what we're, and just using expressions. Well, I didn't really mean that. That's just, you know, that's just a way of talking. Well, just a way of talking. Huh? Well, it just talked its way into your mouth, you know. How's that, yep. you know? Right. And we, right. we just flatly ignore all of that. So without getting, you know, confrontational, although I don't see any reason for that if you can find someone who's, you know, could take a little bit of, you know, uh, sparring, uh, what we end up with is really the question of, of hidden worldviews that find their way into our speech and therefore our thought and possibly our actions and with great consequence without our, our even really knowing. And we're, we're also pretty fickle. We're switching back and forth. We're, uh, we're not loyal to one particular point of view. We say something was meant to be when we chew, when we think, oh, I was meant to be, yay. Oh, no, that, was meant, that wasn't meant to happen, you know? And we go, we, you know, so we create this metaphysical muddle for ourselves 
basically through laziness, slackness of language and thought in those smaller moments, you know? So don't let something like that slip by. And it's, very, it's so much easier to hear it in someone else. David and I try to perform this ourselves as being good dive buddies, study buddies, lab partners. Find someone in your life that you can have this kind of connection with. And when you hear something, because it's easier to hear in someone else's speech than your own, call them out on it and start this dialectic new kind of relationship in inquiry going on. And you'll find it's really, really fun. It's, it kind of will end up like Rosencrantz and Guildenstern in uh, Tom Stoppard's play, uh, where they, you know, these very obscure you know, secondary characters from Hamlet become the protagonists. And they're very witty, and the exchange between them gets sharp, and they get really firing. And there's nothing as fun as really just having someone, one friend at least, that you can really fire with. And you, you don't let them get away with something. You can actually openly challenge them. And then they challenge you. And, and what ends up happening is you actually get smarter together. You know? That's what education yeah. really is. You know? it's, it's not paying tuition and going to some sort of giant sprawling you know, campus where there are posters and banners all about anxiety and depression. It's about having really rich... Uh, dialectical engagements with people who are are also seekers and, and you know curious combatants. You know, that's what yeah, you it's want. about. Uh, it's about not letting Satan draw you too fast, so to speak. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That was uh, an earlier episode of based on the wonderful words and a lot of the dying words of Dutch Schultz, the gangster. You know, but yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. So that's you want to actually the the whole thing that and you know whereas my my drum is the journaling and the externalization your your drum is really focusing on language and I think it's been consistent from the very first episode and I love that you drill this down and if there's really one thing that people take away from listening to this show it is to just be uh, to just be curious about things for example. I saw a word uh, recently. I wrote it down in my notebook. Let me go look. See, this is this is great because I've externalized my memory to the point that I don't have to. Sophrosign. Have you heard this word? Yeah, before? yeah. The the discipline of mind, and then uh, this is from the book Pharmaco AI, uh, written by K. Ayato McDowell, in in. Uh, in collaboration with the GPT-3 AI, and this is from what the AI was saying. Uh, Note that a green mind, in quote, uh, might not be one that makes many decisions, but one that makes wise ones. So between the definition of software sign and that little note, I just, I thought that was really kind of cool. And it speaks to, again, we say so many words. We say so many words. We're on Twitter constantly and I learned yesterday that when you read something your vocal cords are in fact vibrating and if one were to place a microphone up to your throat a very sensitive microphone they would hear tiny little mumbled words so if you're scrolling if you're reading or if you're speaking obviously you're you're saying something but the the idea of slowing down a bit and analyzing what you're saying 
and really having a good meditative think on what that's doing because as we all know it's called you know there are magical spells and then we engage in the act of spelling when we write uh, there's a there's a connect there's a strong strong connection there so I just wanted to point out Chris that I uh, that I'm grateful for the the weekly reminder twice weekly once when we record and once when I listen back uh, to, to pay attention to the things that we're saying Thank you. Yeah, it's important, and I, I'm glad you found the word Sofferson. I, I actually, uh, uh, I had the same sort of discovery of that, uh, you know, way back writing Zanesville, and it figures into uh, my, my novel, Zanesville, sort of mythology. But I think the, the beautiful thing about the word awareness is it really can be a kind of Solomon Islander exploration of the jungle, where you the more aware you are of any ant or butterfly or kind of bark or, you know, everything builds on everything else. It's a very uh, self-enriching program of, of approach to the world where you, you get something back all the time and little sort of queries start firing people. And it is possible to have, you know, actually start really interesting discussions with people from very humble simplistic and certainly unpretentious you know starting points or you know you can just innocently ask you know a question that that then is seen to have an enormous rhetorical oomph to it like the for instance substitute for diversity today substitute biodiversity I mean that's just three letters a very basic prefix that's known to everyone how does that change the meaning of that? Well, it sure can, you know? And that's when I think things start to uh, find some potential for regaining focus mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. it is only through language that we will find that way. Or said another way, there's no other way to find that kind of revelation or that kind of new awareness or regained awareness or refreshed perspective unless it has a manifestation in language. Mm. Excellent. And our tip for today? Okay. This is, uh, this is again, one of those things that you, you really need to have the richness of a little bit of research and time into to just sort of see what it really means because it's easily said. But for an earlier tip, I talked about the idea of seeing ourselves not as sort of uh, individuals and artists, say, in a music sense, but to think of ourselves more as, as say, a studio, I said at the time, like a, a set of resources. And I still think that's interesting. Um, but I've been listening to uh, Daniel Schmidt and uh, David... He's now uh, 80 years old. He teaches at Mills College. He's uh, a gamelan uh, artist, and uh, he actually creates his own instruments. There is a beautiful album uh, that he recorded a long time ago with uh, him and his young son, and I was thinking of you and Gus when I was listening to it. So just, I find that his music really haunting. If you, I particularly love gamelan mm -hmm. music, but he's uh, a neo-gamelan genius. He also has an attitude of making the instruments that his 
music compositions require, which I really, really love. I love that idea of, yeah, don't just use the instruments that are there. You, you have a musical idea, well, then you're going to have to make the instrument that will handle that. Great idea. But think the idea of a gamelan orchestra, I love that. That's a very different idea than a Western orchestra. It's, it, it's the same idea, of course, but it's much more uh, humanitarian and communitarian. And the core idea is that everybody knows exactly what every other instrument and player does. And there's a kind of uh, ability across the whole orchestra. And I love that. So there is that sense of individuality within it, just like a Western orchestra with strings and, and brass and movements and uh, percussion. But yet, there's so much more unification of it. The, the gamelan is like a single entity, you know, where everybody mm -hmm. understands every other part. And I, I wonder what would happen if we thought of ourselves First of all, not as isolated beings or integrated beings. Forget integration. Give that up. Ad admit we're just a little bit, you know, disintegrated. Nothing wrong with that. But think of our ourselves as collective entities likened to an orchestra. That's already sort of sounding a little bit cool to me. And then what mm -hmm. about a gamelan orchestra, you know? Uh, mm -hmm. I, I really like that that model of, of it makes me feel a little bit more unified and a little bit less disintegrated. Lovely. You want to hear about my dream? Yeah, hit us. So <clears throat> I've been having, um, since I started writing them down, as per, uh, you know, your practice, my dreams often put it in television terms my dreams used to be perhaps a single episode of television uh, maybe a movie a, a nice chunky two and a half hour movie but my dreams now have been at least to my perception lasting all night long long sprawling stories that go on and on and on and on and this one was particularly interesting because the genre of dream that I was in could be compared to if the 1001 nights mixed with Mission Impossible, right? So I'm, I'm a kind of Tom Cruise, Ethan Hunt character, but in a world, uh, uh, you know, a sort of Arabic, Persian uh, styled world that's full of, you know, jinn and other sundry creatures. And uh, I particularly remember an action scene in which I was doing battle with a blue jinn and just like, how terrifying this thing was. It had this big stretched out smile and long fingers, and I was hunting it through these tight uh, sort of corridors between houses in a kind of, I don't know, Moroccan marketplace. Uh, so I thought you would think that that was kind of cool. I do, I do very much so. I, I, I love everything about that, uh, particularly, you know, the composite landscapes, the, the mashup of, I mean, there's so many clues to how the mind works and how it could work that, that we get in dreams. If only we could sort of put those, you know, more into a real executed propositions in, you know, in waking life. Uh, mm -hmm. I, I, I think that, yeah, I think that's really, um, 
I like that. I do. I do. Cool. Um, cool. I'm assuming you dreamed as well. I, I did. I actually had one of the first real nightmares I've had in some time, which I won't okay. go into, which uh, it was interesting, though. It was... Uh, it involved being staying at this sort of motel on a coastal road, like the Great Ocean Road in Australia or uh, Highway 1 in California. And this very sadistic couple, I was on the, the second floor, very sadistic couple beneath me, uh, sawing and dismantling uh, their property, their room. They were kind of permanent residents there, and they, no one had told me about them. The one thing I took out of them, though, was... Uh, the guy had what would have been almost a fluorescent, a hot red plaid jacket, but it had been worn and kind of dropped, you know, the color had faded a bit. But nonetheless, you could tell it was too hot a red originally for uh, to be comfortable. So that was in the background. But then the main dream was Randy Brown, the mystery voice clown. I kid you not. And uh, mm -hmm. <laughs> I actually... You mentioned your friend Jordan Harper, and uh, I, I have never met I, I know that he worked on The Mentalist Show, which is one of my favorite TV shows. And I had actually been thinking of him because I have, for off mic, I had an idea to discuss with you, and I thought, well, you know, maybe we should just kind of formulate this and, and, and just see if, if uh, Jordan, who is working in Hollywood, has any recommendations of where to go with it. So that might have been on my mind. But... Uh, in the dream, I'm, I'm a television show writer, and the premise is a character named Randy Brunetti, who becomes Randy Brown, is from New Jersey, and uh, he's just a knock-around, you know, dick kid. Uh, and one summer day, he uh, is trying to impress his girlfriend, and they're on the Jersey Shore. He goes swimming, and he gets attacked by a great white shark. And he gets, all, he's almost drowned. It's, it's, and miraculously, they bring him back to life. And this is the mechanism that gives him, an, or releases an extraordinary ability. He comes back to consciousness and back to life, able to perfectly, perfectly mimic anyone. He is the ultimate impersonator. And he can shift between voices and he quickly uh, gets an act together at uh, a Rotary Club, you know, then hits it on Atlantic City. He's in Reno very quick. Then he's a big star in Vegas, and he has, he's on you know, the Tonight Show, late night shows. And pretty soon he's a, he's a big star. He can do not only perfect celebrity imitations, he can do people instantly, and everyone enjoys that even more. Um, but he has this fear, obsession, with the great white shark attack back in New Jersey. Mm -hmm. And he revisits that whole moment. And lo and behold, he is attacked again. And this time he's really ripped to shreds. And he's a mess. And he, can't, he still can do the mimicry, but he can't perform in public anymore. He's this monster. And so they have him in this kind of weird uh, iron lung surgical, you know, MRI chamber box container uh, from which he can do kind of his, his act in a, in a ventriloquial sense. But no one really believes it anymore because 
they don't see him physically there. They think, oh yeah, you just somehow, it's just technology now. So my challenge is to, uh, I'm one of the writers who is supposed to break through this problem of how, you know, somehow they've gotten him into this mess of he's kind of off the show. And it may be that the, act, the real actor has just ditched the program and that's the real reason for it. He's no longer there and they're trying to keep the show going in a ventriloquial sense then. And uh, so I, I'm in the, the writer's room <laughs> and this is like a beautiful Twilight Zone sort of moment. And I'm talking you know, to them as if you know, they're sort of colleagues and I say, well, you know, here we have the case, it's really a disappearing star. Like the actor, you know, ditched the show and then we wrote in, so the character has gotten mang. Everything is just disappearing. And yet we, you know, the show, you know, wants to keep running when there's no, no idea left anymore. And uh, <laughs> this one guy who has these enormous sort of uh, tortoise shell glasses uh, looks around and goes, yep, that's about the size of it. And then he disappears. <laughs> and all of the people disappear and I'm left in this writing room with just myself and I think I don't know if I want to look out that door because maybe this isn't a writing room at all mm. and I wake up 